0: Well, good morning. Uh, happy Mother's Day to, to all you mothers out there. Grateful that we could share this time together. We're finishing up our series that we started uh, on the cusp of Easter, Life to Death, Death to Life. And the reality of what we're really wanting to capture is, is the impact of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and has, how his death has, has brought us life and then subsequently how... Our death, meaning our life surrendered to Him, is actually the source of life itself. We're going to jump into Acts chapter 3 this morning. And so if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do, I'd I'd invite you to open them. If not, it'll be up on the screen as we jump into that. But the real topic I would suggest this morning within the confines of this text is what I would call change. change, as even Sam prayed this morning, that it's one of those elusive realities that we we think about this sense that we have the ability uh, to to change in and of ourselves, and yet chronically and consistently we're made aware that we just don't really have the capacity to change that we thought. So uh, the story goes, or I guess not the story, but the joke starts off, how many counselors does it take to change a light bulb? One. As long as the light bulb really wants to change. Yeah, haha, really funny, right? But the sense is, is that there's just this challenge of wondering, is change uh, dependent on uh, myself? Is it dependent on the circumstances around me? How do I know where I need change or even if I need change? Am I moving towards circumstances around me changing? Is there something inside me that needs to be changed? And, and ultimately, we find ourselves just wrestling with the reality that we, we see things in the context of our life and the challenges that you and I face, which are unique and varied and, and often unpredictable. And we think, well, I, if I had to do it over again... I would have done something differently. Or at times when we're really introspective, we would say, I, I wish I didn't feel the way that I felt or thought the way that I think. And so sometimes we get somewhat critical on our own hearts about whether or not we actually are the people that we want to be. And then we're influenced by others around us who are telling us that maybe you're, you're a good person, everything's all set, not usually the best of friends telling you those, or this is where you need to change. But it's all dependent on so many different variables that we wonder within ourselves, what does this really ultimately look like? Uh, Dr. Edward Miller, years ago, had done a study of 600,000 patients who had gone through uh, bypass surgery, heart bypass surgery. So they had... Literally, it got to the point where their lives were at risk and they had to do this incredibly intrusive surgery to to reconnect and replumb their hearts in significant ways so that they could then live again or have a new sense of quality of life. And the reason why the majority of these patients were in the condition that they were in was because of lifestyle choices, right? I mean, t- cheeseburgers and french fries don't really aren't the best thing for heart health. And so in the process of being sort of near death, the study showed that uh, you have a nine to one chance to actually change your habits. Means that, that basically uh, one out of 10 people actually change their lifestyle, even though they know that their actual lifestyle had led them to this condition. And so the observation from this doctor was people don't change. They just don't. But by nature, we become creatures of habit where we're just forced into this mentality of of things are going to be okay and sort of live under this illusion that somehow in some way now that I got fixed up and replumbed and my heart's working again, I can go back to the same lifestyle that I was doing and expect that the results would be different. It just doesn't makes sense. We have in our text this morning a unique scenario, and I wanna set it up for you. Because at the beginning of chapter three in the book of Acts, you you get this sense, right? After Jesus had ascended, so now the disciples had been compelled to go and share the truth of Jesus Christ with the world. They've been commissioned. Christ had left, gone uh, on his way to heaven, seated at the right hand of the Father, and found himself now sending the Holy Spirit. So now they're empowered to do the ministry and the work that Christ has called us to. So this is kind of the inception, if you will, of the church itself. So things now are sort of moving forward, and they're empowered with the Holy Spirit to do the work that Christ has called them to do. And they encounter an incredible amount of unique challenges throughout the entire book of Acts and onward. One of the things that you get is this sense in which, as the Church is the church, as Christians are Christians, and they're fixated and following Jesus Christ as the sole source of their hope and their life itself. They encounter tons of different things that they could have never anticipated and/or predicted. And so it starts off in that very way. They receive the Holy Spirit, they begin to do the work, and and, and the Bible tells us that, that Peter and John are on their way to the hour of prayer at the temple. And Uh, they had seen a a lame man. And the Bible gives us some indications of who this guy is. He's been lame from birth. So literally crippled. And the text tells us early on in Acts chapter 3 of what happens. How do people deal with someone who is lame from birth? Well, they do what religion and society has always done. They pick them up and do the best that they can, put them in a place where they can be publicly seen and hope that the generosity of people walking by will be enough. Here's what you realize in this text. This person has been lame for their entire life, a burden to the people around them. And at the end of every day, you start to count who was generous to you and what money they give you to sustain. But your day and your life never changes. You're dependent on someone to take you home that night and pick you up the next day, and you're doing the same thing chronically over and over and over again. Greatest casualty is hope, lost in that moment. You know the pattern of your life if that's you. And yet that's society's and even religion's only solution to chronic challenges of people's lives. Hopefully, somehow, in some way, through the generosity of other people, they'll have barely what they need, but they'll never really be able to change. Something unique happens in this context. Peter and John see this lame beggar. They give him the title. So again, already categorically labeled, right? He's lame. So they identify him based on his disability, And then he's a beggar. So chronically, his vocation is, I am stuck and I need other people or I will not be able to survive. So this label is how the text gives us an indication of who he is. But then you get this word that Peter and John use. And it's a unique word that actually gives us the indication that their gaze was fixed on this individual. The text would tell us that they saw him. And when they mean saw him, it wasn't that they saw him as a crippled beggar, chronically disabled and just needing help from other people. They saw him for maybe the first time in his life, not someone who was just a burden, but someone who had unique value that had dignity and was worthy to be seen, Peter and John see him. And here's what they say in verse four, Peter directed his gaze at him. That means they saw him. And here's what Peter said. Look at us. You can just imagine the scene where this lame beggar was even in the place of not just disabled physically, but chronically crippled by shame. You can sense the head down, the desire not to look at the gaze of those who are walking by and just hoping that the generosity of those that would be going to meet with God during the hour of prayer would find some level of generosity to just throw them a bone, just a, a token of something. Never included, never really valued, but Peter and John show up and they, they look at him and he fixed his attention on them expecting to receive something from them. Verse six, Peter says this, I have no silver or gold. The very thing you're looking for is not what I'm gonna give you. But what I do have, I will give you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. He took him by the right hand, raised him up and immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And look at this, verse eight, it says this, and leaping up... (laughs) For the first time in his entire life, the dude jumps. Like he is just so filled with joy and anticipation and excitement that he does two things. He leaps for the first time, and then he praises God. it's like an incredible moment of life-altering change through what? The declaration of the power of the name of Jesus Christ right? The the value of what that means to be the source in which change occurs. It wasn't as though here, let me get you to the right medical professionals to fix your situation. No, it was here. I want to give you all that I have because all that I have is wrapped up in Jesus Christ himself. That's what Peter and John are saying. And so uh, the people saw him walking, this person that had been there his entire life, walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. So now we're gonna get into the actual real source of the text uh, this morning, uh, verses 11 and following. But but I wanna set up the reality of what this section means for us. When we talk about life to death and death to life, here's what we're saying. We're saying because of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ who not only conquered death and, and the, the, the punishment for sin and its payment, but its power over us that we've now been infused with a life, adopted as children of God to carry through on a, a vision and be a part of a family that, that God is doing an amazing work in the, the name of Jesus, the power of Jesus' name still has an impact in our world here and now. And here's where I think this text moves us to, is that a life surrendered to Christ will always move us to brokenness and opposition. A life surrendered to Christ will always move us to places of brokenness and opposition. So what I'm saying here in this text is that Peter and John, as they're going about their day, would have never anticipated that this is where the Lord would have called them. But what Peter and John realize armed with the gospel is they see people differently and they even are so focused on not just the masses, but the one the one who is hurting, the, the one in need, the one who is desperate and, and has such a, a life of just chronic ailments where there's really legitimately no hope for their life to change. And rather than avert their eyes from the suffering of this lame beggar, they see the dignity and the value that this man has before the God of the universe, and so they move and they communicate and they said, I'm not, I don't have all this money that I'm going to give you, but let me give you what I do have, which the text would tell us is infinitely more valuable than money anyway, right? Like what's most valuable is I want you to know the reality of Jesus's intimate relationship with you that then incites and ignites change. That transformation, biblically speaking, cannot occur without the power and the strength of Jesus Christ. Society will give you numerous options or place you in public squares where they might even, even religion would do the same thing of saying, well, let's just hope that change will happen based on the generosity of others, the the good advice of individuals. But the Bible tells us that the source and the hope for all change, for all time, for all people, is an intimate relationship with Jesus Christ. Because here's what we begin to understand. We don't know where we would need to change outside of the gaze of Christ himself on our hearts. We would change in ways that we think would be great, but then we're the driver of the bus. So Jesus then, through the truth of his word, gives us this sense of reflection of where that sense of change and transformation occurs, and it leads us into places of brokenness and opposition, The church, those who are the bride of Christ, convinced of the power and the truth of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, are always equipped to move towards the suffering of the world. That we are the end of the spear. We are those that are called by God himself not to avert our eyes from the challenges and the sufferings of society. No, we move in not because we know how to fix every problem or change every heart but because we know that through the power of the resurrected Christ, things can change. And our only hope is that the the God of the universe, Jesus Christ himself, through the power of the Holy Spirit can be that which implements that change. And now we jump into our text this morning. Here's where we start to move. So the, the very reason Peter preaches the sermon that he preaches is because Jesus changes the brokenness Of the one. I love the reality of this text. Now, this doesn't always occur. There are times where where Jesus and Peter and people preach to the masses, and a huge amount of people's lives are changed. And you don't necessarily get their names, but you do get this indication that 3,000, 5,000 people came to faith in Christ and were convinced of the message. And certainly that happens. But often, often, the reason why the masses are gathered is because the truth of Jesus Christ had impacted the one. When I was in Vermont, I worked as a, a fireman uh, numerous times, and, and you never knew what sort of calls that you would find yourself getting into. One of the calls that I had was a, for a, a, an elder in our church that lived right down the street, and it came over as a cardiac arrest. So you, you jump in, and you, you, you leave your house, you make your way to their house, and, and sure enough, uh, he's not breathing, nothing's happening, as, as he's, he's on his bed, and you begin the process of, of doing CPR. And so in the process of all that, weird dynamics of thinking about CPR with one of the elders, I don't ever hope I have to do it here, uh, but... There's just that place of like, okay, things are, I have to change from thinking about this person that I've served the church alongside for, for so many years. And now uh, I'm not only fighting for his life, but the things that I'm doing, I'm hoping are gonna bring him back so that he can continue to do the service that God had called him to do. And it didn't happen. The Lord had called him home. And so we took him all the way to the hospital. We worked on him in the ER and then sure enough, you could hear outside the doors of the ER, his, his family just in utter fear and worry about the worst case scenario happening. And sure enough, you transition then from, from being that fireman that was trying to help bring him to life when they, when they called it and he, he didn't make it. You, you transition back outside the doors to being the pastor and, and caring for the family as best you can in the context of those things. But in the, in the midst of his life and, and one of the most difficult moments of ministry One of the things that was unique is that his death afforded for us an opportunity for the masses to gather to preach the gospel. That I could share at his funeral the reality of his heart level commitment to the cause of Jesus Christ. And the masses were gathered and all the people were there because he died. Because suffering had happened, the most difficult thing had taken place, and everybody was trying to grieve together, but it afforded an opportunity for the truth of Jesus Christ to land on people's lives that might not have ever heard the gospel or had been convinced that they didn't believe it. And yet again... Often, as God works in the lives of the one, the masses gather and hear the truth of the gospel. That's what happens here. So the reason why everyone's here around Solomon's portico is because this lame beggar was healed. So you have in verse 11? This lame beggar, while he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his... um, Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back to your sins, uh, turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time of the restoring of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Verse 22, Moses said, The Lord God will raise you up, a prophet like me, from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to the prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all of the prophets who had spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days, you are the sons of the prophet and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying, Abraham and your, and in your offering shall all of the families of the earth be blessed. God has raised up a servant, sent him to you first um, to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. So you get this sense of what ends up happening in the context of, of now Peter preaching around Solomon's portico is that all of the masses are gathered because the lame beggar that society had no solution to, that religion had no response to but to throw a couple tokens at him, had been totally transformed by the name of Jesus Christ at work in his life. And not just transformed physically. The text gives us an incredible indication that he praised God. He recognized where his healing had come from, that there was an intimate, abiding relationship that had been transformed in his life in such a way that his life now was not just fundamentally different because he could walk. His life was fun, fundamentally different because he was now able to understand what it meant to praise God, to be in that abiding relationship with the God of the universe through faith in the name of Jesus. That's good news. But now, as Peter begins to preach this sermon, there are unique aspects of this sermon that are just incredible to me. So he communicates to all of those gathered around about the reality of their circumstances. And he says, look, I want you to know what you did. I want you to be well aware of the decision that you made. You killed the author of life. You before Pilate had been given you an opportunity to release Jesus or are Sabbath, and yet instead you decided to release the murderer and condemn Jesus to death. Now, I imagine you thought you were doing the right thing, but in the process of that, you realized that you acted out of ignorance, not knowing full well what you were doing. But Jesus, as the author of life, was working in all of those ways to help us understand that Jesus had to die for our life to be able to to be found in him. And so in that moment, there's this realization of the perfect provision and plan of God. And so all of these nuances, all of these uniquenesses, from all of the Old Testament up until this moment, Peter is communicating that God had a plan. And that plan was... Jesus. And that plan, not just for that moment, was Jesus, but that plan is Jesus. That faith in Christ and his death, burial, and resurrection secures for us intimacy with the God of the universe. And whether the sins we do are out of ignorance or intentional, the invitation is yet the same every time. Be aware that we are in deep need and have committed egregious sins against a holy God. We have done things and regularly do things on consistent ways that we have to turn and recognize that they're not God's design for us. And in the process of those things, that invitation is to repent and turn. The blessing is the relationship. It's not just the healing. But here's what you get is you get this contrast between someone who is physically crippled And then in Peter's sermon, he essentially communicates to all of the religious leaders around. You know, there's emotional and spiritual disability that exists that you've done out of your ignorance. And you might be unaware of the reality of your own self-righteousness, but in the process of those things, you need to know what you've done. I think one of the messages that we get in the context of this particular passage of scripture, is that God's work never ceases. There's not a moment in the context of all of human history, past, present, or future, where the fullness of the work of God and his constant, sovereign, providential care and plan for all of human history is marching to the place that God has designed it. He is doing something. And so that something is calling you and I as Sinners who are in desperate need of change in our own hearts to be changed by the reality of a power outside of us, which is Christ Himself. The reality of the Holy Spirit at work in each of our lives that we could find hope and truth and faith that Jesus Christ is the source of what that hope means. Whether they acted out of ignorance or intentionality, the, the point of this whole message is that God never seeks, never ceases. work. He's always operating. And so what does that do for you and me? I would like to say that part of the conclusion of this text is that you and I are both givers and receivers of the gospel. We're both givers and receivers of this truth. Here's what that means. You and I, as followers of Christ, realize that there are things even in our daily life that are uh, constantly and chronically putting us in opposition to the perfect plan of God. We struggle with sin in our lives. We struggle with thought patterns we don't know how to change. We give our lives over to different aspects of idols, whether it's approval or comfort or security or power, whatever it is. We're, we're drawn to places of uh, self-reliance and self-sufficiency. And yet, when things don't work out, we find ourselves consistently at a place of saying, That didn't go so hot. <laughs> I, I need something else. I need the reality of Christ's work in and through me. I need to see. And, and what I love about this text is that the, the Bible tells them the truth about themselves. The, the Bible, G.E. Peter's words, gives them the truth about themselves. <laughs> you, you killed the author of life. You did so thinking that you were doing the right thing, but it doesn't change the fact that you egregiously and independently decided that what was best for you is to get rid of Jesus because he just caused too many problems. And, and the Bible will always do that. It will always tell us the truth about ourselves. And in the process then, it will move us to the, the knowledge that, that we need daily change. You don't need the gospel once where you placed your faith in Christ and everything's good, and that is all the change that needs to happen. You need, I need, the gospel, the truth of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and his power to change human hearts daily. You need to be reminded, and I need to be reminded, that the Bible tells us the truth about ourselves. You cannot, I cannot do this on my own. I don't see what needs to be seen. I can't do what needs to be done. I need a life surrendered to Jesus. Jesus. And will always lead me to brokenness, seeing my own, as well as others. And will lead me towards opposition. Because these religious leaders are now trying to contain the situation of the disciples. Let me just offer one final, very practical encouragement that I think this text moves us to. If we are both givers and receivers of the gospel, then I want to lay before you this morning that there are people, if not a person... That the Lord is specifically positioned in your life right now. I, I didn't, this object lesson didn't come from me. It's not new to me. Not original. I actually had heard it from Louis Giglio at Passing, Passing City Church. But here, here's what they do. And I think it's something that is, uh, helps me regularly be reminded of how the gospel is compelling, compelling me to places that um, I, I may not at, be as aware of. Here's what they do. They, they, take, a, they take a light bulb. And they place the uh, letters of the individual's name that they are convinced the Lord has placed in their life. And in the process of those things, they're reminded that because they've been given the light of Jesus Christ in their life, they're a light to this person. And they don't always have the answers to the trauma and the challenges that these individuals face But they realize that every moment of every day that you're afforded the privilege and the opportunity to see, know, or be a part of this person's life is a gospel, divine, ordained moment by the God of the universe. So I have one, KF. I won't tell you who this gentleman is. But there's a chronic sense of challenge in his whole life. Things have been uh, progressively difficult and difficult to even understand and wrestle with questions of, you say God loves me and cares for me, but there is no way I can believe that based on what's happened. I don't know how to believe the testimony of the truth of God's word when these things took place in my life. And so we walk, we talk, we pray together. And there are moments where it feels like, God, man, the Spirit's working and they're, they're the right words. And then there are times where I feel like an epic failure as a friend and even as a pastor in his life. Because I'm like, I, I don't even know what to say. I don't even know how to say what should be said. There's a level of desire and compassion and empathy and concern for his life. But I just I just want him to know Jesus and I want him to know the loving care of Christ over his life. So I have this light bulb that I keep in my office to just regularly remind me that I'm both a giver and a receiver of the gospel. Here's what KF has done for me. It's helped me realize even my own brokenness. The fullness of my story has become more clear as I've walked and been a part of his life, that the places of dysfunction in my own story that I just didn't even think about have now become much more clear, and it's driven me back to the reality of the sufficiency of God's grace in my life. And it's been such a joy to see how God is regularly transforming me through the challenges of this gentleman's life. But then as a light into his life, and maybe possibly the only one I don't know, I hope not, I pray that there's tons of people in his life sharing the truth of Jesus with him. But if, if I'm the only one, I want to give him Jesus, I want to give him the gospel. I want one day to plug this light into a lamp and realize that his life has been saved by the truth of Jesus Christ and that he now becomes a light. To others. I I need these regular reminders in my own life because I recognize that a life surrendered to Christ will always, always lead us towards brokenness and opposition. It's not as though we have to figure out what that brokenness is. With the truth of Jesus Christ and his power to change, We are but vessels of a gospel that has transforming power and your testimony is truth that that's the case. Jesus has changed your life and mine and he's not done. So we surrender our lives to be used by him in powerful ways that the death that he died and the life that he lived has so much changed that I don't need to be the one that has authority over my life where I'm the one in charge I actually just want my life to be surrendered to him because a life surrendered to Jesus is a life used by Jesus in the life of others. Would you pray with me?